Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this week's episode, Bishop Rhodes answers questions submitted from students at Fort Wayne's Bishop Lures High School. Questions cover important and current topics like the wall at the Mexico border, transgenderism, the underground church in China, organ donation, and tattoos. If you have a question for Bishop to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, or check out the free Redeemer Radio app and select Ask Your Questions. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, here with our good Bishop. Thank you again, Bishop, for taking some time out of your schedule for us. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Kyle. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And we also want to thank our friends over at Bishop Lures High School. The, we've got a bunch of questions today. We're just all, all questions today. And these come from juniors and seniors at Bishop Lures. So our thanks to their religion teachers for their help in organizing this and getting some of these questions. Uh, hopefully, they could use this episode as a class, a religion class. Yeah. Maybe all of our high schools could use this as a yeah. class replacement, with your permission, maybe. Oh, for sure. <laughs> you know what? I just had a visit to Bishop Lores a couple of weeks ago. I've been doing my high school visits. We uh-huh. have four great high schools in the diocese. And so I'd like to just uh, give a shout out to the students at Bishop Lores. Um, it's uh, great to, to receive your questions. And I really enjoyed my visit with you a couple of weeks ago, celebrating mass and then uh, visiting classrooms. So, uh, so now we're kind of continuing that like religion class now with your questions. So. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully I'll be able to answer them. And recommend anybody that's listening, maybe for the first time you're tuning in because there's uh, high school student questions on here. You can check out past episodes of Truth and Charity and there's all kinds of different topics and questions have been addressed in past episodes and they can find those. Or if any other high schools want to send in their questions, they could do that by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Uh, or you could call the station and get, we have some paper forms that they could fill out if that's easier to just pass out in the classroom. So. On to our first question. Is Pope Francis the same in person and privately as he appears publicly? I've only had two uh, private little conversations with Pope Francis. So just from those brief encounters, what struck me about Pope Francis was his warmth um, Mm. and his attention, you know, like I felt like I had his full attention when, when I greeted him and when we spoke a little bit. So my impression is he comes across like that in public too. So I think he comes across as, as very warm, you know, very down to earth. That was my uh, principal experience. And remind me, when you speak to him, do you speak in Spanish? Yes. Uh Yes. All right. Well, this next question is interesting, and I haven't heard this before, but why can't a pope's body be used for organ donation? Can a bishop's? Well, I can answer the latter part very easily. Yes, the bishop's uh, body can be used for organ donation. As a matter of fact, um, the church holds that organ donation is really... A, an act of love. It's mm-hmm. a testimony of love for our neighbor. So it's a good thing. Um, of course, we don't agree with the commercial you know, use of organs, uh, like an organ market, but really each a donation of an organ <clears throat> is, uh, can be a very beautiful gesture of helping someone else. Mm-hmm. The question about whether the Pope can donate his body 
I never heard that until some years ago. Pope Benedict, he was an organ donor, so he had an organ donor card Uh so that after his death, his organs could be given. However, there was a big thing in the news that once he became Pope, that was no longer possible. Okay. So everyone was kind of surprised, and they asked the Vatican. The Vatican said that when a Pope dies, his body must be buried intact. And, And then the explanation that was given at that time is that the body of a Pope belongs to the Universal Catholic Church. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, Now, that doesn't apply to bishops. I guess my body doesn't belong (laughs) to the diocese after I die. Okay. (laughs) Interesting. Jacob Krager from St. Aloysius Parish said, can I get a tattoo, and how does the church feel about tattoos? Okay, Jacob, good question. I know... Uh, I had this question before on Redeemer Radio, but it's probably good because there's a lot of listeners who probably didn't hear the show because that was quite a while ago. So let me give you a few uh, considerations here. First of all, the church hasn't made any kind of formal decision on the matter of tattoos. So I would think that the church does have a teaching against mutilation of the body. Uh, which is relevant here. Um, So I think there's various things. You know, I think one is it would be wrong to get a uh, a tattoo that mutilates the body in a way that it causes damage or impedes bodily functions, the normal functions of the body. Mm -hmm. I don't really know about tattoos doing that, but certainly piercing can do that okay so i think that's uh more problematic Hmm. if someone's thinking about tattoo i I think there's a couple questions that would be you know of a moral uh moral sense of this Uh, first of all what's the motivation in doing it Mm -hmm. why uh is it out of vanity right or pride then it's not a good idea you know what's the motivation Mm -hmm. obviously it would be immoral if the tattoos had words or pictures that are morally unacceptable Mm -hmm. unchaste or demonic even you know sometimes people have these tattoos with symbols of the devil right Uh, that would definitely be wrong i think also you should take account health considerations to be very careful because if the instruments for tattoos aren't properly cleaned, someone can get infected, mm-hmm. uh, including hepatitis C, which is a very serious problem. So that's another consideration. I also think it'd be good to, to ask oneself, would this offend other people? Would this offend my family mm-hmm. or my friends or my neighbors? And then that way cause scandal. So... You know, I don't think someone should be selfish about it. If it's going to upset family and that, why do it? And then I'd also ask the question about the expense. Is this justified spending the money uh, to, to have that done? So these are things that can help one evaluate the situation before making such a decision. So I don't think people should rush into getting tattoos. I know people who've done so maybe under the influence of alcohol or whatever and then mm. they regret it or you know putting the name of a girlfriend and then <laughs> splitting up and you're uh-huh. kind of stuck with it and it, you know it can be an expensive and 
and painful process, difficult process to remove tattoos. So, so hopefully, Jacob, that uh, it's not a clear yes or no, but it gives you some moral guidance. Our next question from Emily Schmitz from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish. And I think this is a follow-up question from our January 16th show where you talked about Adam and Eve and whether or not they really ate a fruit or if that was more symbolic. She asks, was there really a flood that caused Noah to build an ark? I heard the story was based on a myth about King Gilgamesh. Okay. Uh, Well, you know, you're right, Kyle. Um, This is something, you know, back in January, we talked about those first uh, chapters of the book of Genesis, Mm -hmm. the creation stories. And I said at that time, and this also applies to the story of the flood, that these are really what Cardinal Ratzinger and many scholars call divinely inspired symbolic narratives. So they are symbolic narratives, they're stories that communicate truth, religious and spiritual truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, because remember, these are this is still the inspired word of God. It's it's divinely inspired. So but it's not necessarily historical or scientific. So I think that's a good way to also when we look at the story of the flood, scientists tell us that there's really no evidence that the whole earth was ever inundated by a flood. Hmm. Now, there are scientists, though, and geologists who said that, say that perhaps there was a massive flood in that region of the world in the ancient Near East. As a matter of fact, geologists have discovered melting glaciers, that melting glaciers near the Black Sea could have caused the collapse of these massive ice dams and that would have happened about 7,000 years ago and that would have triggered massive flooding hmm. across a wide area so there it's very possible that there was a historic flood um, and that that inspired the story of Noah or even the preceding uh, stories because as Emily asked is it based on a myth Um, Well, there were stories at that time, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, and even older stories than the Epic of Gilgamesh, which um, described a flood and how the gods were afraid of the flood and Hmm. all this kind of stuff because human beings had become too numerous and noisy and all these kinds of things. Well, the Genesis account, the author of Genesis may have used some of these stories, some of these devices to show how the God of the Israelites, the true God, was superior to these pagan deities. So the message that comes across in the story of Noah and the flood is very different in the sense of the religious truth that it communicates. Hmm. So it makes sense that God would inspire human authors in this manner um, to take this popular story and, you know, with the help of divine inspiration, communicate some important religious truths, especially about God's attitude towards sin and then redemption. Hmm. So, and Pius XII, Pope Pius XII, even back when he wrote, and I mentioned this in the earlier show, that important document, Encyclical Humani Generis, spoke about the possibility of 
these sacred writers taking popular stories and adapting them and then communicating important uh, truths for our salvation. So was it historically factual? Who knows if there was that, you know, as I said, there may have been a great flood in that area of the world, mm -hmm. but that's not the important thing. Um, the important thing is the, the truth about God and about man and about sin and about salvation. Um, and we can look into that. We would have to have more time, but to talk about all the meaning that's there mm -hmm. in that, even how it prefigures Christ and the ark as a symbol of the church and, you know, the water being a symbol of, of baptism mm -hmm. that washes away sin. We even refer to Noah's flood when we have the blessing of water at baptisms. Hmm. So, so there's a lot we could do about this story. It really is very rich, just like the creation stories that we talked about on an earlier show. Yeah. Well, coming up, we've got more questions from the students at Bishop Lewis High School right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking questions that have been submitted by juniors and seniors at Bishop Lewis High School. Jillian Chris Lieb from St. Jude's Parish said, if my sister were to need a new heart and she couldn't get one fast enough and I wanted to give her mine knowing I would die, would that be considered a sin? Yes, it would be a sin. Um, I think it's important. I mean, as I said in an earlier question, the Catholic Church encourages organ donation as a morally good act mm -hmm. of self-giving. However, one can never choose evil for the sake of good to come. Hmm. So it would be wrong to endanger one's own health and life, even though the, the end, the purpose is good. One can never choose something evil for the sake of good. In other words, the ends do not justify the means. So it would be wrong to donate a, an organ if it's going to have an adverse effect on one's own health, or in this case, one's life. Mm -hmm. um, I think the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, talks about this, and the Catechism says that organ transplants are good um, if they're in conformity with the moral law. So if the risks to the donor are proportionate to the good that's sought for the recipient. After death, it's fine. Uh -huh. It's a noble, good thing. It's to be encouraged. It's an act of love. It's an act of solidarity. It's part of the culture of life. Um, it's trying to offer a, you know, a chance of health and even of life to someone who's sick. You know, we think of kidney donations. We have two kidneys. Mm -hmm. So even if, and this is a case of donating an organ prior to death, it is permissible mm -hmm. to give one kidney as long as that's not going to, as long as you have two good kidneys, right. and as long as it's not going to endanger your own health. But you could never give one's heart while you're still alive in a, a way that you're causing your own death. Mm -hmm. That's doing something evil for the sake of something good, and that's not, not allowed. All right. 
Luke Miller writes, what do you think as a Catholic we should believe about Donald Trump's idea to build a wall at the border? Oh, my goodness, Luke, you're asking me a very politically charged question, but it is a very good question. Yeah, and I, I imagine since he wrote this question, there's been some new uh, news on the topic. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's a few things to consider here. Uh, I'd like to talk first about what the U.S. bishops are saying about this matter. Okay. But then I'd like to step back from that a little bit and talk about the deeper issue. Because I would say that what the position of us bishops is, and you know, it, we have uh, the USCCB, the, the Bishops' Conference, has taken a stand uh, against building a wall at the US-Mexico border. Okay. And the reason is that, and this is more of a prudential judgment, that the action would put the lives of immigrants needlessly in harm's way, hmm. um, making people, migrants, especially vulnerable men or vulnerable women and children, more susceptible, susceptible to human traffickers and smugglers. Another thing that we're very concerned about in constructing a wall is how it would destabilize some very vibrant interconnected communities that live peacefully along the border. You can see in Brownsville, Texas, for example, the Bishop of Brownsville has spoken out against the wall. It, it's these two dioceses or two communities on the Mexican side, it's Matamoros and on the U.S. side, it's Brownsville. So there's there's just a wonderful relationship crossing, et cetera. And uh, the other thing would be Laredo and Nuevo Laredo. So, so there's families living, you know, in either side and, um, or working, mm -hmm. living in one area and, work, and working in the other. So building a wall makes that um, very difficult, kind of like the wall in, that Israel built. Uh, and that's another controversial thing. There would be some who would argue on the Israeli side that it protects them from terrorists coming from the Palestinian side. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we could argue that this is this blockade has made life incredibly difficult for the Palestinians, and I saw that with my own eyes. So, so those are some practical things to think about. But I think when you look at it more deeply about the moral issue involved, the fact of a wall itself is not immoral. I mean, we have walls. The Vatican has walls. We have um, walls that are erected for uh, security reasons, etc. So I, I think we'd have to ask, well, why a wall between the U.S. and Mexico? And I think there would be maybe some legitimate reasons, but there are also what I would call illegitimate reasons. Okay. There are legitimate concerns for security mm -hmm. at the border and for the good management of immigration to promote the safety of everybody. Um, so I think that's uh, one thing to look at. But the other thing is, if the wall is being built in a way that, that doesn't have those good motives, but really it's kind of a statement against immigration. I think one of the big problems here hmm. is that we should be more welcoming to refugees and foreigners. That's what's most troubling to me. Mm -hmm. Not so much the building of the wall, 
But this small number of refugees admitted to the United States or, you know, the broken immigration system, there aren't many legal pathways to come. Mm -hmm. So I think we could be more generous. I mean, we're a prosperous nation and we're talking about people often fleeing terrible violence or extreme poverty, right. especially these days in Central America, mm -hmm. you know, Honduras and Guatemala and Nicaragua. Um, the Catholic Church teaches the nat natural right to migrate. So my concern with the rhetoric about the wall is that it's, it's when it starts denigrating uh, people, the great majority of whom are just looking for a better life or for a safe life. Mm -hmm. So the walls become, in a sense, can be a symbol of, of being closed right. to immigrants. And as I said, I think we should be more open and more generous in the number of people we allow into our countries. At the same time, we do believe that a nation has the right to control its borders and there are legitimate concerns about security. So if someone is supporting the building of the wall, I hope it's based on those reasons rather than rejecting the generosity that we should have toward, as a prosperous nation towards those who are in need and those who are in danger. Mm -hmm. All right. Next up from our questions, how can I be sure that a seminary is safe from predators and is teaching truth? I think um, most of our seminaries and the seminaries I know of are very, very faithful to church teaching. It's the responsibility of the bishops to appoint good faculty, to make sure there's a good rector, and that they're living by the church's moral teachings, and that there's no tolerance of any kind of subculture or any predatory behavior mm -hmm. by adults, by, by faculty, or whatever. I think... What has happened is because of the reports of McCarrick with seminarians mm -hmm. when he was in New Jersey, it's made people think that, oh, seminaries have this problem today. You know, there might be an isolated problem here or there. I don't know. But overall, I think our seminaries are very good places of formation. I know that the seminaries that we send to, which are Bishop Rutte Seminary in Indianapolis and Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, are both excellent places of priestly formation where they are faithful to the teachings of the church and where there's no tolerance for any kind of unchaste behavior or any kind of predatory behavior, mm -hmm. um, there'd be zero tolerance, zero tolerance. Is that more of a, an era issue that it was a certain time period that some of this was happening or is it location based and administration flaws or why was it a problem in some places at some point in time? Yeah, that's a good question, Kyle. I think it was, um, Something that there were, especially in the 1970s mm -hmm. and 80s, early maybe earlier 80s, I think there were significant problems in some seminaries. It wasn't universal. Yeah. And it all happens according to who was leading the seminary okay. and who were serving on the faculties. And if they were um, problematic priests who weren't living a chaste life or had other kinds of uh, problems, you know, that I think it, it peaked in those those years. What I have to 
uh, emphasize is really Pope John Paul II in the 1990s, uh, there was a great, uh, I would call, improvement in seminary education. He wrote an, uh, an, uh, not an encyclical, an apostolic exhortation called Pastores Dabo Vobis, I Will Give You Shepherds. And it's a beautiful, beautiful document on the priesthood and on seminary formation. And in that document, and everyone, and then that spread, and everyone had to follow it. It emphasizes the four areas of priestly formation, beginning with human formation, mm-hmm. and that's really important because we need healthy, mature men mm-hmm. who have, are affectively mature and capable of living a chaste, celibate life. So, unlike prior years or prior decades, uh, I think a lot more attention was given to really the whole, the total integral education of a seminarian. Also, stricter requirements for admission to seminaries. And that's really important too. Mm-hmm. We can't have men who are psychologically immature or psychosexually uh, have psychosexual development problems or whatever. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's how I'd answer it. And I would say that there were, even in the 70s, there were differences among seminaries. There were some seminaries that, um, for example, we find out had homosexual subcultures, Mm -hmm. but not all of them did. Mm -hmm. All right. A concerned student wrote, my parish priest is young and seems too stressed. Why isn't he getting help and rest? I think the reason he isn't is he he would need to come forward because if I don't know about it or uh, his pa- if he's a, I, I don't know if he's a pastor or not, but uh, if his brother priests don't know about it, we're not able to help. But certainly, if there's a priest who's feeling overstressed, is, is finding that it's affecting his happiness or his, his health, I would plead for them to come forward mm-hmm. so that, you know, maybe they need a new assignment or maybe they need to, to uh, get some counseling or guidance so that they can have some less stress, less anxiety in their life. But there definitely is opportunities. Every priest is entitled to one day off a week and four weeks of vacation. And I think the, um, I shouldn't be preaching this because I don't take it, but <laughs> but that is meant for a good, good reason yeah. to, to, for renewal and reinvigoration. So yeah, I'd say to the caller, if if you feel comfortable suggesting that to your parish priest to come forward for help, yeah, I, I want our priest to be happy and healthy. Yeah. All right. If you have questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we've got more questions from the students at Bishop Lewis High School, including the topic of transgender people adoption by same-sex couples, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and I'm asking questions that have been submitted by juniors and seniors at Bishop Lures High School. And Jackie Buddha from St. John's Parish in New Haven says, does mental illness make someone not suitable for marriage? That's a good question, Jackie. And it, uh, the answer to that is it depends. According to uh, the Code of Canon Law, those who are not able to assume the essential obligations of marriage 
for causes of a psychological nature are incapable of contracting marriage. So if one has a mental illness that is so serious that one is incapable of really, you know, giving the consent that's necessary mm-hmm. uh, and or incapable of really assuming the obligations, the essential obligations of marriage, that's not even a valid marriage. That's a uh, that would be a cause for an annulment. Okay. Um, so really, it depends on what kind of mental illness we're talking about and how severe it is. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about this has to have been at the time that marriage was contracted. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, there's anxiety and depression and all that, but but normally those are not invalidating, okay? They, they're things that one can still assume the essential obligations of marriage. Now, that can make it more difficult, but those are highly treatable. So you really have to look at it. On the other hand, if you're looking at something like schizophrenia, mm. that that's much more serious, mm-hmm. uh, psychosis, and that can make one unable to assume the essential obligations of marriage. All right. Our next question is, does the Catholic Church support transgender people? We always support people. Uh-huh. I mean, the dignity of the human person is a fundamental principle of Catholic moral teaching, Catholic social teaching. So those who are struggling with gender dysphoria mm-hmm. or even have undergone a uh, sex change, which would be immoral, they are still beloved children of God, and they're still our beloved brothers and sisters. But I do think it's important to understand the church's teaching regarding uh, gender theory. There are various approaches, as you know, and we, as Catholics, the Catholic Church wants to help people who are struggling with gender identity disorders, to help them to find healing, to help them to find integration. It's important to emphasize that God created us male or female, that our biological sex is not an accident, Mm -hmm. okay? It's a gift from God. What's problematic about transgender ideology or gender theory, Mm -hmm. it's called, is it ignores or rejects the given or gifted reality of male and female. And it's really sad in the media, in our schools, in in laws, in healthcare, this gender, transgender ideology is becoming very, very popular. But the results are disturbing, you know? People are getting indoctrinated into believing that their body and and their self are at odds with each other, mm-hmm. especially when this idea gets planted into the minds of children, which is happening today. We're called to accept our bodies as as God's gifts and to to care for our bodies, to respect the meaning of our bodies. This is part of our human dignity, to value our bodies in their masculinity or femininity. So that's why we cannot accept um, sex change operations. We feel they are, they are immoral. Putting someone on a hormonal regimen and then surgery to remove the genitalia, et cetera, and replace them, 
that's mutilation mm -hmm. in the teaching of the Catholic Church. It's mutilation. If you understand this properly, a person can't change his or her sexual identity. It's, it's a given. A person is either male or female. And, um, and nothing can change that. Even if you, even if a person has their genitals removed and replaced, it doesn't make them into the other sex. He or she can't change their sex. Um, there's also the problem: mutilation results in a person becoming impotent or sterile. Um, rest of their life, they're on a hormonal regimen, uh, which makes one appear to be other than what he or she is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this mutilation of the body is wrong. Um, we don't determine our own sexual identity by our own subjective beliefs or desires or feelings. It's, it's very, very difficult. My heart and our hearts should go out to those who have desires or feelings, uh, desires to be of, an, of the other sex. Mm -hmm. um, but this is part of our nature. This is something given. It's an ontological given. So what do we do with people who are struggling with this is really they need to be lovingly accepted, but they need you know, psychological help. Uh, if we really love them, it's you know I don't think we want to encourage mutilation of their bodies. Right. So that's that's I guess the basics of this, Kyle. I, I guess we could go on even more. Um, unfortunately, I think the um, society and culture is is uh, not recognizing uh, gender dysphoria anymore as a psychological disorder, mm -hmm. but as something normal. And I don't think that's helpful to the people. I don't think it's helpful to those who are struggling. As a matter of fact, I think research shows that even when people do undergo sex change, they're still at a higher rate, significantly higher rate of having depression right. or even committing suicide. Um, and there are those who also regret that they did it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think what is most disturbing, as I mentioned, is that this ideology is starting to be propagated even in, for young children. And there are times where children or adolescents go through a period and they grow out of it. In other words, a period where they think they'd rather be the opposite sex and mm -hmm. then they grow out of it. Right. Well, now, you know, when that becomes like normalized or accepted as okay, that's, I think, harmful to children. Yeah. A related question submitted is, my friends believe a child should be allowed to choose his or her gender. I don't know how to say this is wrong in a kind way. Yeah, I think it does relate back to what I've just been explaining. And I think on that practical level, I would just try to reinforce that God loves them, that sometimes people can have desires that go against their, their nature, and that um, we want to help them to learn to value and accept the sex that, they, that has been given to them by God. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want them to feel condemned in any way. We don't want them to feel like they're... Um, have less dignity because of this. It's just a, a uh, psychological problem yeah. that needs help and needs healing. 
All right, another student asked, why is it wrong for a same-sex couple to adopt a child? Wow, these are a lot of the, <laughs> I mean, these Bishop Lord students, you're asking me all the, the controversial questions today, but I'm glad you are because these are important questions, yeah. very important. Basically, I think every child is meant to have a father and a mother. Mm -hmm. I mean, I shouldn't say... I mean, every child does have a father and a mother. Right. <laughs> you know, the simple biological uh, fact is that two sperm or two ova cannot unite. You know, we have a sperm and an ovum. So uh, just as sexual difference is necessary to conceive a child, its importance doesn't end there. Mm -hmm. Men and women bring unique gifts to the task of parenting. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know that, Kyle, as a father. You know, you have certain gifts, and your wife has certain gifts. And I think the mother and the father each contributes in a distinct way, unique way, to the formation of their children, helping them to understand their identity as male or female. So if we respect the dignity of the child, I think we need to affirm the need or the right to grow up, up in, a, in a family uh, with his or her married mother and father. Of course, we know that doesn't always happen. There are single parents, there's families that lack a father or a mother, and et cetera. But those aren't intended things, mm -hmm. you know, those things usually. They, uh, so there's a big difference between the unintended reality of single parenthood and approving these alternative families that deny a child of a mother or of a father. And when it comes to adoption, it may be well-placed. I mean, it may be well-intentioned to mm -hmm. put a child in the care of two men or in the care of two women, but I think it ultimately is depriving the child of a mother or a father. Yeah, hopefully that answers the question. Yeah. All right. If you have any questions, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll continue our questions from Bishop Bluers High School right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman. We're asking questions submitted by juniors and seniors at Bishop Lewis High School. One of the students asked, can a formerly Catholic, non-practicing, have a Catholic funeral mass? Yes, if they have not formally abandoned the Catholic faith. It's not allowed to have a Catholic funeral if one is a notorious, canon law says, a notorious, which means publicly known, okay. apostate, heretic, or schismatic, hmm. unless they've repented. But if someone just stopped practicing the faith, that's not a good thing, but they wouldn't be a notorious uh, you know, heretic, necessarily. Okay. The important thing is, did the person want a Catholic funeral, too? Uh -huh. You know, I think if, if someone, you know, we should not be... Uh, celebrating a Catholic funeral mass for someone who didn't want one. Right. Uh, kind of would have to presume he or she wanted a Catholic funeral. But generally, a non-practicing Catholic can still have a Catholic funeral mass. Okay. How about this one? How can people be named saints if it's a sin to judge someone? Well, I think, you know, it's it, it, we would need more time to explain what Jesus meant when he said, 
judge not lest you be judged. Uh Um, But Jesus is really speaking about condemning. It's a sin to condemn others. Judgment certainly belongs to God. Mm -hmm. I mean, God judges everyone at the end of their life, at the moment of their death. In the case of canonization, the church is 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 not doing taking the place of God. God has judged that person. What the church is doing is discerning whether or not God has welcomed them into heaven. And usually, in, well, in that discernment, you know, we look for miracles mm-hmm. as evidence that the person is in heaven and mm-hmm. is a saint. All right. Another student wrote, what is promising slash encouraging about possible reconciliation between Catholics and the Orthodox? Well, I would say that, you know, what's promising is that we have so much in common already. Catholic and Orthodox believe, for example, in the teaching of the first seven ecumenical councils. Catholics and Orthodox both have all seven sacraments and are a real, you know, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Uh, Catholics and and Orthodox have the apostolic succession, so bishops who are true, valid bishops. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot that we have. There's a profound closeness between the Catholic and the Orthodox. Where the biggest um, disagreement is has to do with papal primacy. There's a lot of progress that's been made in our ecumenical dialogue, but without getting too much into it, I think even with all the progress that we've made, there are also divisions within the Orthodox Church. And I think more than half of those who are Orthodox are Russian Orthodox. Hmm. And the Russian Orthodox do not accept some of these recent agreements that the Catholic Church has with the Patriarch of Constantinople, who is the first among equals among all the Orthodox bishops. And it's interesting that I read recently that only 17% of Russian Orthodox favor reunion with the Roman Catholic Church. So that makes it difficult. So it's rather complex, possible reconciliation. It's going to be difficult because the Orthodox themselves are so divided. But I would never give up, and I do think it's encouraging the strides that have been made. All right, next we have, what is an underground church? For example, those in China, and how does it survive? Okay, the underground, the term underground church refers to those Catholic churches in China, in the People's Republic of China, which have not chosen to associate with what's called the Chinese Patriarch, Patriotic Catholic Association, which is what the government of China sanctions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So underground churches came into existence in the 1950s after the Communist Party established the People's Republic of China. And there was a severing of ties between Chinese Catholics and the Vatican. So the underground churches worshipped underground, basically in secret. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of the priests and bishops were expelled from the country or imprisoned. Uh, some died. So the underground church, those who participate in the underground church, they've remained loyal to the Pope. The Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association, those are the more open churches. They cooperate with the government, and sometimes their bishops have not been recognized by the Vatican. This is very complex. But you may have seen within the past several months, uh, the Holy See, the Vatican is trying to bring the underground church and the Chinese Catholic 
Patriotic Catholic Association together. I mean, there should be one church in China. How to do that is, is extremely difficult because you don't want to hurt those who've been loyal to Rome by giving in mm-hmm. uh, to the interference of the Chinese authorities. And at the same time, you want to have one Catholic church in China. Sure. Finally, Anthony Ficaro asks, how long have you been a bishop? 14 years and two months. Okay. <laughs> That's an easy question. Thanks, yeah. Anthony. All right. That, yeah. Five of those years were in Harrisburg, and the other nine years has, have been uh, here in Fort Wayne, South Bend. All right. Uh, thanks also to the students at Bishop Lewis High School and the religion teachers. So thank you for submitting those, and thank you, Bishop, for answering them for us. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Kyle. It's been great. Thank you, Bishop Lures. And could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you would like to ask Bishop Rhodes a question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. All of our previous episodes are on the website, too, and available to download so you can listen anytime and anywhere. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. <laughs>